This is a conversation with Mukhadas Mijit, an ethnomusicologist and performance artist who is from Xinjiang and now resides in France. Our conversation looks at the sounds, music, instruments of Xinjiang and Mukhadas trying to keep these traditions alive against the horrific backdrop of violence and genocide currently taking place in the Xinjiang region of China against Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other minority groups that the Chinese state deems to be expendable. We discuss the music of Xinjiang, the ways in which music influences the culture and identity of Uyghurs, and how Mukadas, through her work as an ethnomusicologist, tries to keep these traditions alive and evolving in exile from Xinjiang. It's a very moving conversation with a powerful and brilliant person, and I was very moved to be able to speak to Mukadas on these issues. For more conversations like this, you can go to our podcast, The Arts of Travel. We also have an episode with Darren Byler that explores the politics of genocide and the mechanisms of violence China uses to try and exterminate the Uyghur people. You can also go to our website, Asia Art Tours. We have interviews with figures like Ben Mock, who looks at the campaign of violence through oral history of Uyghurs describing their experience in concentration camps, and figures like Jean Bunin, whose Xinjiang victim database looks to document these atrocities as they happen so they cannot be erased from history. Here's my conversation now with Mukadas Mijit on the music, sounds, instruments, and musical culture of Xinjiang, both in Xinjiang and abroad. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Muqaddas Mijit. I'm an uh, ethnomusicologist, filmmaker, and performative artist. I currently live in uh, France, but I'm originally from Urumqi, from um, Uyghur region. A lot of my work is um, around the idea of what is Uyghur culture and how to represent Uyghur culture through art. Um, like different kinds of art, music, dance, and visual art, and also through my researches. So it's a it's a painful topic, but um, I've I've resolved in with a melting world and <laughs> a possibility of a coup in the U.S. I'm just very honest now because I don't know how much longer things will be even this level of stability, which is pretty in uh, unstable. But I'm for the academy. Um, I've been very curious. I know a lot of scholarship has come out about um, the campaign of state violence uh, from China towards uh, non-Han Chinese uh, within Xinjiang territory. And I'm wondering, for you, as an ethnomusicologist who has a long sort of academic history, where is the sort of um, 
how are you trying to contribute to telling the story of the, the of state violence while at the same time not letting it dominate your work, dominate your scholarship? And within the academy, how does some of that tension play out? How can we just sort of exist and, and do the work of scholars while still dealing with this sort of existential violence that unfortunately does hang over um, issues of Xinjiang, issues with Kazakhs and, and with Uyghurs currently? My personal history as well is shaped around how I can talk about Uyghur stories, as you said, um, to have um, legitimacy to to be able to be on um, academia and have knowledge to uh, uh, to present and let people know, learn about Uyghur culture. That's way. Um, it's also related to how I came to ethnomusicology. When I arrived in France in 2003, I was supposed to go on uh, um, extending my musical journey. Actually, I'm a trained um, classical musician. Uh, I got a visa to study classical piano in France. But as soon as I arrived in France, I realized how um, invisible Uyghurs are. So through some circumstances, uh, through my encounters with people in the uh, world music scene, um, I don't like that, that uh, title, but anyway, it's uh, in some world music festivals. Some people really helped me to understand the way in which I can have uh, a voice, I can have some tools to talk about Uyghur culture. So these encounters lead me to academia, lead me to ethnomusicology. So I dropped my plan for studying classical piano. So I went right into um, uh, undergraduate st studies uh, in Paris University uh, to start um, doing ethnomusicology. At the, at that time, I didn't have any idea of what was ethnomusicology, even anthropology. Um, I didn't have a lifetime plan for becoming an academic, but um, I thought that was the best way for me, at least, to uh, to talk about my culture and to to let people understand um, uh, my situation as a Uyghur uh, from uh, Uyghur region. Um, which is a huge region, actually. After years of struggle in the academia, because in France it's not, uh, I, I would say it's not very easy task to uh, study in uh, ethnology or anthropology, uh, especially there is a huge, um, uh, huge um, dilemma for um, students from their own culture who wants to get degrees in ethnomusicology. Um, I was always confronted by some ethnomusicologists um, that people from the culture itself, they don't have enough um, distance to study or analyze their own culture. But um, with the years passing by and also um, with the uh, development of in the field, I started to develop, to understand how to 
create this distance because it's also something that you can artificially create to using ethnomusicological or anthropological tools to to really dive into any cultures even you're from that culture so to really come back to your 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 question it's really re really recently that i started to uh speak against what's the the violence uh also my statue being a um ethnomusicologist give me op opened up some doors for me to have uh, a voice people tend to turn to uh ac academics people who has studied these culture so it gave me a kind of a platform to talk about Uyghur, Uyghurs, uh, the violence, and especially what is being um, violated uh, for Uyghurs, especially I, from my point of view, what is being violated, it's their, um, their free wills, their, uh, their will for living like, like human beings to have to continue or uh, to have a choice to continue the tradition or not, or make changes, make new tradition or make new culture. So um, that's something that I, I'm really interested in. And also I try to, to raise awareness about, it's not just a culture being lost, but it's the ability of um, making that culture alive is, is in danger. What is the sort of stress and strain that a lot of overseas Uyghurs are having to deal with in terms of even if you get out of, of the region of Xinjiang through scholarship, through work, what has been some of the, the hardship and, and how has China been trying to, I guess, uh, terrorize, haunt, bring this violence outside of the boundaries of Xinjiang? What is the sort of existential and very real dangers that Uyghurs who are overseas are facing currently or their families are facing currently? Because I know that's talked about, but I think it always should be emphasized in any interview on the topic. Um, and I don't hear it emphasized enough. Yeah, you're right to emphasize on this terror that Uyghur community outside, even being outside of China has been uh, experiencing um, it's something which is really um, which has a really long history I would say in the psychology of Uyghurs as a community because since the, um, the Chinese Communist Party came and took over the, the whole region uh, colonized the ho whole region people didn't have any space to um, to express themselves as uh, fully, I mean, of course they had um, spaces to express their identity, but to fully embrace who, who they are. So there is always this, uh, this kind of um, uh, fear or cautiousness, and especially for the people who, uh, who experienced cultural revolution, to be careful about what they're saying, what they're doing, and also to try to understand where is the red line uh, of uh, Chinese Communist Party not to cross. So this kind of like self-censorship, I, I would say, existed way before. It's not 
really new, but it it is it became really important since two, 2015-16, uh, when the state really decided to harden the 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 um, the censorship, the um, also try to erase all um, all personal or collective the liberty of Uyghurs and Kazakhs in the region. So if you look at someone, if if you, I would say, if you try to understand the psychologies of Uyghurs, they have been living in a fear for so many years. And this fear, um, I think even the Uyghurs in the diaspora, they carried the sphere with them and with the what's happening in 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 Uyghur region since 2016 uh, uh, I mean with all the communi communications being cut off and all the um, you know like all the informations are uh, kind of coming through in different channels and all the horror that Uyghur community outside is hearing from all, all different medias uh, I think that fear, which that Uyghur, Uyghur community cultivated for so many years, became like a big monster. So, of course, there's also outside elements of that. So, state, uh, um, the police, like local police as well, they they um, they would pressure Uyghurs outside of of uh, China to not speak up, not say anything about what's going on in in Uyghur region. And they will pressure them. Uh, they will say they will um, put their family, loved ones, uh, in uh, in the camps. So for Uyghurs outside, they're caught in between this kind of like uh, uh, they're torn in in a, in this kind of um, self censorship that they have developed over the years, and also that outside censorship coming from the region from the from Chinese government so they want to expose what's happening but at the same time they're so feared for their family and so um, they're in um, in in this like on um, unbelievable pain um, they're like they cannot really say anything about what's going on because they're feared for their families and they know they're conscious about this kind of um, untouchable fear that Chinese government very uh, viciously installed uh, since so many years. So your work is is very interesting as sort of a, a public figure, a public academic, and it speaks to a lot of what we'll be talking about today for Armenians. My family's Armenian Lebanese, and Armenians um, have a long sort of historical memory of being victims of genocide. In terms of your activism, what I found to be really interesting, and uh, other Armenian writers have written about this, most notably Sylvia Alajaji, has sort of really emphasized in her work, look, the music of Armenians is so important because, number one, you know, uh, if we let our identity be defined by what uh, the Ottoman Empire did to us, you know, then those people essentially get to define our future. And that's that's not who we are. And so by talking about music, by performing music, by learning about our music, we sort of, we keep our culture alive and we 
keep it separate from what we had to do to survive. You're really unique in that, you know, a lot of activists working in Xinjiang, it's very political. You know, I'm going to write articles for the nation or I'm going to lobby in Washington, D.C. or to foreign governments. And you're one of the few activists, and I know there's others, and I know there's there's wonderful musicians we'll talk about today, but I imagine that had to be sort of a lonely or difficult or uncertain road in terms of developing how you wanted to speak out about this issue and focusing on this celebration of culture when a lot of people were just being very political or or very much just about wanting to talk in sort of the language of governments or foreign policy. Could you talk a bit about the, the process of how you sort of found your voice in speaking about these issues and going your own way and really trying to celebrate culture at a time when a lot of people were just focusing on the suffering? As I um, talked about this psychology of uh, fear that Uyghurs um, been living since so many years, um, I I also grew up in that kind of psychology, and I know like it's very difficult to speak up against what's the state violence and also the this ongoing uh, oppression um, colonization that Chinese government tried to. Uh, in store in the Uyghur region, um, but at the same time, I, I've, I came to this. Um, yeah, I would formulate it differently. I started to to speak up, or I started to 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 find my own way of protesting or um, raising awareness about Uyghur uh, suffering. Um, I would say since I arrived in Europe, because um, then my first protest uh, protest is simply just to talk about Uyghur culture, talk about the Uyghur existence. So as I'm a trained dancer and musician, I didn't have much tools, I would say, um, better tools to talk about my culture and my music and my my identity than talking about dance and music so it's a very as you said a very lonely but a uh, 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 difficult road that i i i uh, experienced but at the same time um that lead me to understand more about my who i am uh, through music, through dance, and that lead me also to talk and uh, bring musicians from the, the the region before 2016, of course. So, even though we stated in the very uh, defined uh, political uh, red line, we didn't um, say anything against Chinese government, but we always carried the 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 Uyghur culture with us in international stages. So I think that was the beginning of my speaking, my kind of speaking out, because I was trying to let the world know that we exist. Um, I would say that that was the beginning of uh, my activism. And then when the things turned really bad in 2016, I still uh, use dance and music to speak out because for me that's the only what I can say 
like the only method that I found personally uh, very humane, actually, to communicate the suffering to the outside world, to people who doesn't know who are the Uyghurs. Um, music, dance, even though it feels like very soft and um, insign not very strong, but at the same time, that's the tools, that's the, the ways that we can really touch human hearts. So I understood that by touching human hearts, we can get more people involved in our, our cases and involved in our sufferings. Um, if, it, if it's reduced to state policy, surveillance, and uh, just the statistics, um, it dehumanizes us. So my process is to, to really use music and dance, not only about um, traditional music and dance, but also to use uh, just simply music and dance and poetry to, to let people understand that actually um, I am just as you are. Um, I, I have blood running through my veins and I have, uh, uh, I, I have um, this heart which is uh, suffering. I try to let people understand that uh, what is Uyghurs going through, it's not that strange and uh, New York Times articles, um, but it's real thing what, which is happening to real people. Turning to your, your specialty, I'd like to sort of ask you, compared to Armenians, Armenians have this figure called Gomitas. Gomitas was this priest who went around uh, both the Ottoman and uh, the, the Russian portions of Armenia and sort of was able to unite and come up with distinctive traits, characteristics, instruments, structures that were the building blocks for later ethnomusicologists to say this is Armenian music. He sort of made visible what everyone already knew, but they didn't have the language to say, yes, you know, this is the music I play as an Armenian. For uh, Uyghur music, I've, I've spoken to Darren Byler before, and he said early, earlier on, you know, uh, for Uyghur identity, people would think of themselves perhaps more as from Urumqi or Kashgar or Turpan. There wasn't necessarily a sense of we have a common sort of Uyghur identity. And I'm wondering for uh, Uyghur identity currently in terms of music, are there these signature lyrics or themes or instruments or structures of Uyghur music that you could play to anyone from the Uyghur, to any Uyghur, and they'd say, yes, you know, immediately, that is Uyghur music. And if so, um, what are some of the things that make that special or unique or meaningful to you beyond just, you know, your identity as someone who's a Uyghur? You know, I can talk to people about Armenian music. It'll mean something different to me. But for people who aren't Uyghur, how do you explain you know, what's so special or unique or moving about this music? Speaking about the, the, the regional or um, more local identity that Uyghurs uh, have used in the past, identifying themselves as 
from Urumqi or Turfan, Qashqar. Um, that was a reality of um, this region, but also it, it was also the diversity of the region because um, that allowed different region to have their own uh, style of music. For example, um, for Turfan, they have their very uh, distinguished uh, Turfan, uh, uh, the rep traditional repertoire from Turfan, for Qashqar as well, for Ghulja as well. Um, but what I found fascinating uh, during my, my, my research is sometimes some melodies are so similar and sometimes the lyrics are uh, very like used in a different repertoire. For example, even though people will uh, never, um, people from Kashgar will say, I love Kashgar music, I will never listen to the music from Hulja, but there are a lot of common poetry who circulated around this region and everyone uh, at one point in the history they they shared the same language same poetry and yes people didn't really have a common uh, didn't define a common identity but they shared a common identity actually without like putting an, a, a name or putting a word on on it so the ethnic identities, I think it's a very recent creation. That's why there are so many uh, problems. And even this kind of um, characteristic could go for the whole Central Asia, because if you travel through Central Asia, you can always find so many similarity in between Kazakh, Kyrgyz, uh, Uzbek and Uyghurs. And they share a common history um, in, this, in this region. Uh, and to come back to your your the second second part of what you you asked uh, your question is um, if I have to introduce Uyghur music to a non-Uyghur audience, what I will say is um, the Uyghur music is so rich and uh, and diverse. There's this a very interesting mixture in between different characteristics of, uh, for example, um, Asian music, the pentatonic music, you can find uh, more Middle Eastern tones in, in Uyghur music. And it, it is very much related to the history of this region because it was um, uh, really uh, in, the, in the middle of this crossroad, in the middle of this uh, trade roads that now we call uh, Silk Road, um, um, but people circulated, people uh, always traveled through these regions and they brought their, their traditional musics and the, their music and everyone listened to everyone's music. And that's the characteristics of Uyghur music. That's uh, that um, uh, uh, inclusiveness, that kind of uh, elect, um, how do you, that kind of, um, uh there's a the there's a heart of Uyghur music but at the same time it's the the Uyghur music doesn't afraid of um having other influences that's the richness of Uyghur, Uyghur music and i cannot just say there's one type of Uyghur music or one repertoire of Uyghur music there's like um there's so many different Uyghur Uyghur music and um that's um huge heritage actually so in terms of prior to um large-scale sort of 
state violence. When we're talking about the music of Xinjiang, how might I encounter it in daily life? If I'm in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, what is sort of music look or or for you know a festival or um, a death? What did music in everyday life look like before the large scale state surveillance and suppression? What was what were sort of the sounds of Xinjiang, and how might I encounter those in my daily life as a Uyghur? It changed a lot um, um, uh, since since I left Urumqi. Uh, it changed a lot since the, the 90s as well. But one thing is very interesting about um, how people lived with music in Uyghur region is, I can only speak for Uyghurs because that's the, the community that I know the best. I cannot really speak for Kazakhs, but I know also there are other communities like um, Tajiks or Tatars or Uzbeks. They're also very... Um, um, musically, um, uh, musically involved in their da daily lives. Uh, but if we talk about specifically Uyghurs in Uyghur region, um, in I would I can very uh, confident, confident, confidently say um, almost ninety percent of Uyghurs has a kind of uh, one instrument in their home or at least a representation of um, of um, a miniature of, of, of a traditional instrument at their home. And um, there's no, there's, there's no, none of the gatherings uh, in Uyghur region could be imagined without someone playing a dutar and singing some songs. There's that this tradition of listening to music, even in a very casual parties, uh, suddenly someone will will sing several songs with the dutar or even a guitar. Um, um, so music is very much uh, present, was very much present in Uyghur daily life. Uh, and, uh, and also Uyghurs are very uh, festive uh, people uh, and their, their, their social life is very much uh, accentuated by um, different kinds of gatherings and also weddings is very uh, it was very important for for Uyghur community um, Uyghur society so in almost all of them there's music there's always traditional music playing if it's not live performance it can be also performed like uh, with a cassette or uh, with some devices so that was one way of encountering music in, in Uyghur society. But if you were in Urumqi uh, or Hulja or Kashgar in the 90s, there were like music shops in the, uh, in the center of Urumqi. So you can hear like all the music playing at the same time so loudly. So even the, the, the soundscape is filled with music, loud music, if you travel through uh, that area. Uh, but unfortunately, that kind of atmosphere disappeared recently. Mm, you don't, like my last trip, of course, it, it was several years ago, but the musical um, uh, soundscape was really reduced to social gatherings. But people would still have a lot of music 
people who consume a lot of music, not only traditional, but also pop music. A lot of pop music was uh, was a very important part of daily life. Uh, Elise Anderson wrote in the LA Review of Books um, about her time as a contestant on Voice of the Silk Road, which was one of the last sort of mass media um, broadcasts where people were explicitly speaking uh, Uyghur, were singing in Uyghur, were performing traditional songs, and then we all know that that was very tragically repressed. And I'm wondering, in terms of the lyrics, if we were thinking of Uyghur lyrics, what would be some themes that it maybe wouldn't matter if I was in Kashgar or Amunchi or Turpan, I would still, were anywhere I went, I might hear a certain theme or a certain image. What were some of the, the metaphors or images that in Uyghur culture we could see were performed very beautifully or were very moving when, when performed within Uyghur music? For the traditional Uyghur music, um, since historically the whole region was um, um, ruled by Sufi masters and Sufi brotherhoods, a lot of poetry sang in the traditional music is related to spirituality. And there's a lot of metaphor, for example, the, the lover who, who never come, or the, the separation, the heart, um, heartbreak, and the 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 lover who's waiting forever the other one to come the, these are like these seems like love songs but it's also it also has a spiritual sufi background um in this lyrics so these themes are very much shared in all over um uyghur region in all the different types of uh, uh, Cult, um, traditional repertoires and then the more recent you were talking about the um, uh, the the voice of silk road um the, the pop industry also popped up after the 1990s so a lot of young musicians were also interested in expressing themselves their feelings uh, through um, pop music or rock music. So lots of these kind of these types of um, uh, songs are mainly about uh, love, heartbreaks, and also separation, um, which are kind of um, have a historical background if you if you can if you think about it um, because the traditional songs as well also, uh, talks about this kind of um, pain of um, this kind of pain, but um, I think the modern, more modern songs are like pretty much literal. They talks about like really this, these kind of separations. But at the same time, um, the rap uh, scene, the rappers are also very active after the two thousand in Urumqi and in in Khoten and uh, in other cities, big cities of, of the region, um, there were very interesting lyrics as well and more rebellious and sometimes very, um, um, very interestingly um, uh, critical about the, the regime and the authorities. And sometimes some of the lyrics are directly towards the oppression, etc. 
So there's different layers of um, and different types of lyrics, poetry, um, and um, there are really impressive work of some young, more not mainstream, but underground um, musicians and artists who produced some really interesting work, which of course were not shown in the, the voice of the Silk Road, even though it's like mainly um, Uyghur spoken uh, TV show, but it's still broadcasted on a state television. So it is pretty much censored and checked by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, there are all these amazing stories that are still waiting to be told of just how uh, diverse and evolving Uyghur music is. And um, something I wanted to ask about in Armenian culture, there's this there's this music called kef, where Armenians were part of the Ottoman Empire, and for a while the Ottomans, it was this pluralistic situation where prior to the genocide, you might have Arab music, Turkish music, Armenian music, all mixing together, and that was kef. It was this music where it was basically the music you played with your neighbors, <laughs> because if you're living in these Ottoman villages, it's very diverse. And um, eventually this music was policed out of Armenian culture because Armenian nationalism started to become uh, more and more prominent and other Armenians might come up to you and say, why are you playing Turkish music? Why are you playing Arab music? You're an Armenian. I I wanted to ask for for Xinjiang and Uyghur music, is this a conversation that's, that's also had to happen in Xinjiang with large uh, migration of uh, Han Chinese into the region and Han culture, were there fusions that took place? And have you heard privately or, or is there in the region, are people sort of sad that these collaborations have stopped? Um, so I know that's a, a sort of a, a melting pot question, but I, I am curious about this melting pot of music. Were, were there a lot of collaborations at one point? Are are people able to listen to Uyghur music still in Xinjiang if they're Han? Or are is the Chinese government going so far as to literally try to sort of erase even songs or lyrics or instruments coming together uh, in an effort to sort of complete its campaign of, of violence? I don't have a like complete answer to that because I, I think the ethnic mixity uh, collaboration in, in between different Han and um, minority artists are always uh, encouraged by the government. I don't think that's that can be targeted by the go- government to be erased or to, to be stopped. But as I don't have much uh, information about that, but I can also only talk about one of the like some of the musicians in who's originally who who are Uyghurs and who are, who became really important in the big stages in 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 main mainland china in in beijing or in shanghai like lots of them they were singing in in han in chinese um to to really to meet their audiences and they became really well known not only for being uh, singing in, in han chinese but also 
being from this minority uh, ethnic groups. So I, I don't have a very concrete on, answer to that, but um, I think that is not something that, uh, that is dangerous or like um, uh, not uh, supported by the government. I think in the country, they want them to be uh, like um, mixing with Chinese artists and doing things in, in, in Chinese. Uh, and also, I would like to say uh, about the pop sings and uh, pop singers, and also some of the um, um, the influence that, influences that Uyghur young musicians have received in the '90s. You know, like there were some rock groups like Cui um, Jian and Tang Chao. They were like very popular among the young young Uyghur musicians who who were starting to to. Um, to expressing themselves on, on stages as a rock musician. And they always looked up to these models because we, of course, we had um, some communication with um, Western countries, like uh, some, we had, we received some kind of informations from all these big uh, countries who are in advanced in pop or uh, rock cu culture. But um, the main information or the main model that people young especially young musicians can look up to its uh, Han Chinese artists so for I, I I wouldn't say this is for everyone but for the the kids who were growing up in the 90s in the 2000 they encounter a lot of um, uh, Han pop culture actually so it is um, it is part of this um, their daily life because all over the shops and everywhere there's this um, they were exposed to this culture and um, some of the the pop musics that the the, the Uyghur artists are created are also very much heavily in, uh, influenced by by uh, Han pop culture um, but um, what is targeted if we want to talk about what is targeted is really something much more complex and uh, much more Uyghur identity related and which will um, reference to the to the history and the 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 independence of uh, Uyghur culture um, um, I mean uh, culturally independent than the Han Han culture is targeted the the, the language the the classical poetry and um, the classical music yeah, you said something that is really interesting. Um, as you know, um, being a, a, someone who speaks multiple languages, um, as and and as I know, as someone who struggles through Chinese, but usually I can get my point across. Um, it was really interesting to me. You said, "Okay, they want Uyghurs to sing in Chinese," but it. It seems that the other side of that is where the darkness sort of begins. They do not want, let's say, a young Han Chinese discovers Uyghur poetry that's been translated, goes to Xinjiang and studies how to actually say it in Uyghur. Or a young Han Chinese, you know, learns about some of the great uh, guitarists coming from Xinjiang and gets really enraptured and wants to start singing in Uyghur. It sounds like Collaboration is welcome, but only in a one-way flow. Yes, yes, exactly. It's 
it's on one one side and the government doesn't really encourage Han Chinese to really understand what is Uyghur culture and who are these people actually. So it's pretty much <clears throat> what they did since uh, since they colonized this region and they want to reduce us actually to the people who dance and sing but in a very folkloric way so in that sense um, the, the young Han, Han artists they will not find it very interesting because they will only see a very touristic and folkloric uh, expression uh, artistic uh, forms of this uh, this culture which is just a surface it's just a deformed way of showing agriculture to these young artists so that doesn't encourage anyone to go deeper and understand truly what is behind this this um this music and dance there was this quote from china's belgian ambassador this guy Cao Zhongming, who tweeted out a video of, of hired performers wearing Uyghur dress. I used to work in Yunnan, so they would dress Han Chinese up all the time as Dai or Bai, and say, oh, they're... So I don't know if these were Uyghurs, actually. But in this video, it's performers, uh, I don't know if Han or Uyghur, dancing in Xinjiang. And his tweet goes, ethnic minorities dancing in Xinjiang. Only carefree and happy people can dance so beautifully. And obviously this is like so in such horrific taste with the, the, the campaign of state violence. And I, I don't understand that. And it, it happens in Yunnan, it happens in Tibet, and it happens in Xinjiang. Can you explain a little bit to me your understanding of it, of why it's important for the Chinese government to have people sort of perform this state-approved versions of their culture? rather than just try to erase it completely? Why do they go through such effort to, to say, oh, look, you know, the, the Uyghurs are dancing, the Uyghurs are singing, but at the same time, if you ever tried to go and learn Uyghur with, you know, a poet or uh, a musician, you would immediately be monitored by the police. Can, can you explain that sort of contradiction or paradox? Um, I can just try. <laughs> um... I think you yeah, you live you said you lived in in China so you know a little bit um the the Chinese psychology and also the, the how they don't want to lose face um and also they are very much into this kind of representation of some ideas and um it's they are always it's very Funny because uh, we all knew in the news when we were little. Whenever there is a catastrophe, natural catastrophe in a in a village or something, uh, the state officials will go to these places and distribute um, um, some uh, su supplements, some 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 supplies and some uh, some food or some stuff. And everyone knew that that's only for 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 TV. As soon as the TV crew goes away, all what they distributed will be immediately taken away from this poor people who just uh, get their homes destroyed or their businesses destroyed. So this is pretty much what 
they do and what they stand for it's to to show to to have this facet to 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 show people that everything is good and they're they're the the biggest um uh bienfaiteur i don't know how to translate it in in english the 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 good uh, saviors for for everything and then they prone diversity etc but um at the same time they they just want to control everything if it goes beyond their control if it's not um perfect perfect image or perfect picture um that doesn't goes with their their policy so i think there's a kind of um, um contradiction in their um in their policies as well uh, for promoting this kind of very um purified very folk folklorized version of ethnic um cultures for just to to show to the outside world like everything is fine as the, the ambassador of uh in belgium said like the the purest and happiest people will will can dance like this they by doing that they want to just show the world uh that everything is fine but i mean it's really it's true it i don't know it's really crazy to think that by showing han people wearing uyghur clothes or um uh, like like han dancers dancing uyghurs i i don't understand like me neither how chinese officials will think that the world will buy it so there's a kind of a denial also from their point of view they think by doing that they can avoid any criticism and let the world think that they're they're actually doing good for these um, ethnic minorities which mm -hmm. really crazy but living in this very complex world of all the uh, so-called fake news i think they just want to repeat the 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 uh, repeat these um lies over and over and over again and they're also denying that world will eventually wake up one day and see the truth which is really very uh, strange for me as well how in earth and they could really believe that their shows is will be uh, won't be exposed completely at one at one point armenians have this really interesting experience most armenians grew up in the diaspora there's more armenians outside of armenia than inside um and for armenians similar to a gomedas where if you ever meet an armenian and say oh you know what do you think of gomedas they'll go oh my god how do you know um there was this song uh called karun karun which was um sung by a lebanese armenian when the armenians fled the genocide uh many armenians moved to lebanon they were welcomed in um and and there's a very large uh, armenian community in lebanon and there's all these complex issues of am I Lebanese, am I Armenian, am I both, am I not, that uh, 
uh, Armenians are constantly very uh, here and there in terms of who they are. But this song, Karun Karun, you can say it to probably most Armenians all over the world. They'll instantly know what you're talking about. And it was created overseas. It didn't happen in the homeland. It didn't happen in the Ottomans. It didn't happen in um, the country known as Armenia. It, it happened overseas. And it, it's one of the most authentic and moving pieces of Armenian sort of popular culture uh, uh, of a generation. And um, I, I, I may mispronounce this gentleman's name. This is from a Uyghur poet, uh, Tahir Hamut Izgil. And he was interviewed, uh, I believe that this comes from the, Adla the Atlantic. And he, he had this to say, um, if future generations of Uyghurs are unable to visit their homeland, if they are unable to see their native soil, if they are unable to experience the culture in that place, it, it will be much more difficult for them. If the next several generations of Uyghur culture is destroyed in its homeland, it will be very difficult for Uyghurs in the diaspora to preserve it. Even in the diaspora, it may cease to exist. Um, so I know your work is a lot about sort of celebrating Uyghur culture while being outside of Xinjiang. And I'm just wondering for you how you've sort of grappled with these questions, how the many musicians and artists that you collaborate with have grappled with these questions. Um, for Armenians, they've been able to, you say, system of a down to anyone. You know, they're going to know <laughs> about Armenian culture. Do you have a sense of this question, at least how, how you've thought about it? What does it mean to be sort of writing about the homeland while not being in the homeland? And do you feel and do other artists feel that you need a homeland to sort of continue being, uh, being Uyghur? Yeah, it's a really great question. And um, that's something that I... I try to stress in my interviews or in my work, um, I get the the concerns about the 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 culture and the identity being destroyed in the homeland and that being the sources of all the Uyghurs in the diaspora. Um, but your example of uh, Armenian uh, community outside of Armenia and how they are they have been creative, how they have been creating all these incredible work artistic world works um since so many <laughs> so many decades which is really interesting and should be inspired is should should inspire the uyghur young uyghur artists for me i, I don't actually need a homeland to be creative uh, i probably i need the idea of the homeland uh, that might motivate my my creations but um I would say, of course, I don't want to say that I don't need a com homeland. I, I just want to be clear because I don't want to get criticism for that. But um, but I think what we are facing is very new as a diasporic community. So we are still trying to figure out how to uh, respond to this, uh, this crisis and how to uh, find ways to be um, uh, stay alive and uh, to uh, to continue to make art, make culture, to 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 uh, keep our culture alive. So one of my uh, point of view, which sometimes really diver like diverse from others, because I I believe in the 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 creativity 
uh, and responding this to this uh, the the idea of uh, res responding to the the crisis with the creative uh, mind. So it doesn't mean that we need to hold on to the traditional culture or identity as it was in the homeland, but um, I'm more interested in what can we do with all the knowledge that we have of this culture existed in the homeland, which will still have a kind of form, it's not done yet, it, it will still continue to exist, even the this a very complex and complicated um, regime. But as artists being outside, what is our work and how we can find creative ways to to develop and to to continue creating because for me a culture which doesn't uh, create itself it doesn't know it, a, 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 an art form a, um, music dance or whatever uh, an art form which doesn't know how to recreate itself which th that is a dead form I, I mean that's already the end of that 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 form so um i'm not like people who really think like me are not uh a lot in the uyghur diaspora right now because everyone is so afraid of losing this homeland losing this uh, uh traditional culture but i think we need to be creative and we need to find ways to maintain it and to make it uh vivid and um because cultures are always uh that's the how, how that's how cultures being made and being shaped uh i mean i don't believe that if we are um outside we cannot continue that culture there will be different more um diverse forms will come out of it but we need to find that ways and so a lot of our conversation today has been about, um, at least for me, trying to um, see the long history of being Armenian and then sort of compare that to a lot of the modern violence that Uyghurs are going through. And I think, at, and I've talked about this with other interviews, I'm very... Um, happy about the global wave of protests, but I think we're, we sort of need to rethink identity in a world where everyone is sort of suffering. And I don't think that if it can be Black Lives Matter or Armenian Lives Matter or Uyghur Lives Matter, I don't think these separate spaces will ever really be able to save the world because the, at I think the problems we're all facing are global and it'll need to be sort of these movements or ways where someone from Hong Kong can see themselves in someone from Thailand who can see themselves in someone from Nigeria, who can see themselves in someone from Mexico, who can see themselves in someone from the U S and your work um, is really interesting in that you create a lot of spaces where everyone can sort of participate in Uyghur culture um, in a very inclusive way. You've worked with Lisa Ross, who's, who's not a Uyghur, um, from New York, the Ida Walsh Dance Company, the Seattle Asia Art Museum. You brought uh, Perhat Kalik 
to the United States to perform at that museum. And you invited, you know, an audience where there's white people, black people, uh, indigenous people to come and sort of participate. And I'm wondering how you've come to think philosophically about this, the spaces you want to create. How do you invite people into Uyghur culture in a way that allows them to contribute while still having it remain a Uyghur art form? And do you want more collaboration where it becomes something different entirely? Um, could you talk a bit about those spaces that you're building and what you're hoping to accomplish in, in bringing all these different people into uh, Uyghur art? I completely agree with you by saying like, like someone's struggle is not diff like, it's not something else than your struggle. Like I think that the humanity is facing some kind of really um, critical um, issues all at the same time. And also like there's, there have been a awakening of like uh, for the Black Lives Matter um, uh, pro protest and also in Hong Kong and a lot of them there are like really uh, struggles which everyone can identify themselves with or not everyone but I would say lots of the, these people who are fighting for these different um, uh, loots um, I I never like I I cry um, I cried so hard when when I was watching the the video of uh, George Floyd getting killed by the police. And it's, I didn't cry because um, it's Black Lives Matters, but it's a human being being killed. Um, uh, and it's so, I mean, it's so not acceptable. And it, it's really a struggle that we have been facing. And it's the same thing that someone feels so powerful enough to to reduce your life to nothing. And that's something that all these people in all these struggles have been um, living. Being an Armenian, you you understand that. Being an Uyghur, I understand that. It's It comes back to this injustice in the end. And in an injustice is an injustice. And I mean, we all have to come come together. It's the same thing. It's the these powerful people who wants to diminish those who doesn't have voice or that they think they're uh, inferior, like they don't, I mean, we all human beings, they, sh they shouldn't have this kind of categorization of uh, some group of people are more powerful than the others. So that's, I mean, that's something really <laughs> enrages me and also give me a lot of motivation when I do anything because um, Whatever I, I I do as an artist or a scholar, I I I try to find this this connecting points with others and to try to to really um, um, have be in a, in the same space as you said. It's not to only create a same space, but also in the being in a in the same space. A lot of my work was really um, was shaped be because. I felt is really um, unfair for some Uyghur musicians from Rumchi cannot perform in a big stage as someone who was born in in US. So 
my my motivation is always being like i'm a human being as you and i have talent i have something to say and i shouldn't be uh, um, discriminated because i'm from the small town from uh, a place that no one knows um so the the space that i want to create when i uh, collaborate with other people or other people collaborate with me is always to have this this same equal voice and that's something that i really i'm really interested in uh, uh doing work with other people with lisa or some other people that i'm i'm still even with the pandemic i'm working on several different uh projects artistic projects i don't want to <clears throat> reduce uyghurs to this uh victims but i want to to share the beauty of Uyghur culture with other artists and to say, well, I have this material, let's create it, create something together. Um, so my, my philosophy is um, like cultures, uh, language, anything that human beings are created are, are something that the 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 whole humanity should um uh, get a taste of to share to get to share so my philosophy is i have this background i'm from this culture i i studied um this music dance and um the culture um i my duty and what i can do best as a human being is to share with you so if you want to share my culture if you want to to understand me i'm an open book and i can and i'm also very much eager and i'm also very much interested in in you and i want to learn more about you so that's the kind of space that i would like to create and i want to question constantly to understand uh, we as human beings and um to creating a, a safe space for everyone, not only for this or that community, but everyone, an equal uh, society for everyone. That's, maybe it's too big, but um, I'm really um, deeply motivated by, by that. Well, Mokadas, um, it was a pleasure. Uh, I think whenever I talk to people like you, I wanna immediately go learn 10 more languages and like five more skills. Um, before you leave us, um, I guess the last question is just, could you provide some breadcrumbs for people who are interested in our conversation? In terms of a, a song or uh, an artist, could you give us sort of one, perhaps one band, one song, and maybe one other artist that you would recommend for people uh, who were interested in following up this chat, and then I'll give you space just to have a final comment. But what would be, what would be your the sort of breadcrumbs like uh, Hansel and Gretel or the clues um, for people who are interested? What would be some of the starting points for getting involved with some of these art forms of dance or poetry or music um, that you could perhaps provide a specific recommendation? Um, I would invite you to check the works, uh, the translations that Joshua Freeman has been doing. Uh, and he, he speaks really well with word and 
and also he worked like his entire work he's like a, 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 he's a researcher and he's uh translating all this very interesting and powerful poetry uh from contemporary poets some of them most of them are in uh, concentration camps right now but you can um have a look on just google his name and he has been also working uh to raise awareness of several um artists poets like parhat uh, tursun he's a very interesting figure who writes beautiful poetry and i think that's the way to start because these words the these poetries are really powerful and you have the english translation of them so for the understanding i think it's it's really interesting to have these and if you want to to have a musical recommendation i would recommend uh the ketik group it's a rock group that i worked uh with in between 2010 and 15. um there's a film documentary film that i made about them and also there's a two cds that you can find in uh, music platforms um yeah i think that's thing that's the recommendations that i would give to anyone who was interested in to follow follow up our conversation uh mokudas it was a pleasure um i am left wanting to change the world but all i have is a laptop and a podcast which is a i guess a good incentive for any artist was there anything that you wanted to add and where can people find you or your work um if they'd like to learn more about you specifically um i have a very incomplete website so you can find uh, by googling my name um so i put some um photos and some video works that i i made over the years and also there's also some some of my archival materials from my field work as a ethnomusicologist that you can find i try to update what i'm upcoming events but i'm like really uh not um up to date on my on my website but i have a facebook page i put like lots of um coming events um on public and also uh you can find me on instagram uh youtube i have a youtube channel so you can see more about my uh film works Thank you.